Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 2nd, 2022, our first show in May. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco. Uh, spring is blooming here. Nature is everywhere, as I hope it is for the rest of you listening and watching around the world. Um, we've done a lot of shows on the curious, complicated relationship between us, nature, and animals. Um, we tend to think, I think, of animals as if they're a a mirror of ourselves. We're looking for ourselves in them. We did a show with the wonderful naturalist Jackie Higgins um, a few months ago on what animals tell us or reveal to us about our senses. She has a new book out, an interesting book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. Um, we look for lots of different things in animals. Uh, we had Devin Price on the show, a kind of slacker who I think wanted to use animals as an example about why we shouldn't obsess over productivity. But perhaps the best show we did about what animals can and can't teach us was with the very well-known naturalist uh, based on the East Coast, Carl Safina, who reminds us that we need to be humble in the face of nature. Um, his book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty and Achieve Peace, is, uh, is a very interesting, rich um, human read, even though he seems to be um, arguing that humanity and the natural world are essentially one. Um, my guest today on the show has a new book. She's again, uh, Cy Montgomery is one of uh, America's leading writers on nature and other creatures. She has a new book out, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with a Fierce Beauty. And I'm curious, um, Cy is joining us um, with her dog, if, if the dog uh, chooses to appear. Cy, I'm guessing that the hawk tells us nothing about ourselves, does it? The hawk is the least human of all creatures, it seems, at least judging from your book or what I've read of your book. Yeah, they're very unlike us in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I certainly, I can attest that they think and they feel and they know, but in a different way than we do. And in a way that I think can stretch our minds and stretch our hearts when we start to get to know them because they are so different. Do they lack a heart? They certainly have an excellent vision and supreme intelligence, one of the, the smartest and, and certainly one of the most um, athletic of, of, uh, of, 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 of non-human creatures. But do they have a heart, do you think? Did you get a sense? Because I know in your book you compare them with dinosaurs, and dinosaurs, mm -hmm. at least in the way we think about them, don't seem to have much of a heart. Yeah, I think it's it's very different from what we consider that warm and fuzzy feeling that you get with other animals. I've I've known I've had relationships with a lot of animals, including octopuses and dogs and cats. I I befriended a rhino once, um, and I I find that with all the animals that I've met, except for hawks, 
without exception, they will enjoy once they get to know you, gentle touch. But the hawk, hawk does not really want you to touch it at all. So your relationship with a hawk is utterly different than even the relationship that you can have with an octopus, an animal that's so distantly related to us, our last ancestor that we shared stretches back half a billion years when everybody was a tube. But these guys, just like you say, uh, they're alien to us. Which I think my guess, aside from the wonderful book you've just come out with, The Hawk's Way, is in quite vivid contrast with your earlier best-selling books, The Soul of an Octopus, for example, The Hummingbird's Gift, um, The Good Good Pig, you're forever associated with uh, Christopher Hogwood, uh, 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 a runt piglet that grew into a 750-pound great Buddha master. Um, did you choose to write about hawks because they're so foreign, because they're so different to us? exactly exactly i wanted and i was i was surprised even though this was what i wanted i kind of wanted to touch that uh, just incandescent wildness that hawks have but even though that's what i wanted to do even i was surprised by the 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 depth of um the feelings that i had for this creature who couldn't possibly care about me. And yet when I held my first hawk on my glove, I was just instantly in love with this creature. The creature didn't have to do anything for me other than just be there and let me be near its magnificence. It's a very humbling experience. What do you think, um, Cy, of, and again, I, I... I don't want to pick on Carl Safina. He's an excellent writer. But what do you think of writers like Safina who look to other creatures to, or, or, or for that matter, uh, Jackie Higgins, who look to nature as a mirror to tell, uh, and to other creatures to tell us about ourselves? Do you think there may be a, a kind of anthropocentric, almost narcissistic quality to that? Well, so often, whenever humans see any wild animal, they think that, oh, you know, the hawk has appeared in the sky because it's got a message for you. Well, no, the hawk has appeared in the sky because <laughs> it's hunting for a bunny to eat. Um, and it doesn't have necessarily a message for you. But still, animals can teach us about ourselves because they, they move us. And they can teach us about ourselves, too, because all of us share a huge amount of genetic material. And when you think of it, you know, you share 99% of your genetic material with a chimpanzee, but you share 90% of your genetic material with any mammal and 40% of your genetic material with a banana. So technically, even a banana can tell you something about yourself. And... Um, I, I've read Carl Safina and Jackie Higgins' wonderful books, and I think they are they are absolutely terrific and important. Um, but that doesn't mean, of course, that animals are here just to teach us lessons, but they do make wonderful teachers. Let's talk about the dinosaurs. You have a wonderful... Um... Uh, a wonderful beginning to the book. Uh, I'm quoting it. Inches from my face, I hold a living dinosaur. 
Like his ancestors, the creature I hold on my fist is a hunter, an eater of meat, as did his forebears, the therapeutic dinosaurs, creatures like Allosaurus, Velicraptor, uh, Ve Velociraptor, Tyrannosaurus. This bipedal predator possesses large finger bones and forward-facing eyes, bestowing excellent binocular vision. Like them, when he hatched out of the egg, he was covered with down. And as with many of them, his baby down then gave way to feathers. The difference is, unlike the other dinosaurs, this one before me can fly. How did the hawk survive, given that most dinosaurs, of course, were wiped out, perhaps by this terrible event when who, there's obviously some debate within the scientific community, but there seems to be a degree of consensus that perhaps the Earth was hit by an, a massive asteroid. Right. In fact, I mean, they know where the asteroid hit now. It's called the Chichlub Crater, and it's right off the coast of, of Mexico. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, my God. And this was 65, 64 million years ago. Uh, the ancestors of uh, the birds may have been burrow dwelling. There's actually quite a number of burrow dwelling birds. And in this way, it's possible that they survive. There's all different theories about why the ancestors of the birds survived and all the other dinosaurs died out. But what is interesting to me about how um, birds are related to dinosaurs is they are most closely related not to the plant-eating dinosaurs like Grontosaurus and Diplodocus, you know, the, the, the slow kind of they may not have been that slow, but slower four-footed plant eaters, but they are related to the theropods, the scary ones, the meat eaters. So even when you see, you know, a little chickadee at your feeder, that's a descendant of, you know, one of the, the scariest, most powerful predators who ever lived. And when you sit down to your Thanksgiving turkey, if you eat meat, um, you're eating a dinosaur and a descendant of Tyrannosaurus rex. So um, we associate dinosaurs, of course, with uh, eating a lot, with being predatory, with being very dangerous, but we don't tend to associate them with intelligence. Mm -hmm. Given that the hawk is a descendant of the dinosaur, why is it so intelligent? Well, you have to have a lot going on upstairs, at least in certain departments, in order to fly. Uh, you need to be able to process things in your brain very quickly. And particularly, I mean, when you consider somebody like um, a peregrine falcon, in its stoop, when it's diving after its prey, it reaches speeds in excess of 240 miles per hour. So you can't be scratching your head and wondering what you're going to do next. You've got to have some very fast reactions. And that doesn't mean that they sit around debating philosophy or that they have, you know, uh, necessarily stuff like theory of mind or that they can recognize themselves in mirror or, you know, some of these mental characteristics by which we like to measure intelligence like our own but they have to be aware of what's going on around them and be able to make instant decisions. They have to have an excellent memory. And for hawks, their memory for anything to do with catching prey, it's like a steel trap. 
Now they, they may not remember that they saw this guy over here once before, even though today, you know, he's wearing a hat and he seems like a completely different person. And so you're going to scream at them. Sometimes they seem really dim-witted, but I mean, I do too at times, uh, but they they do have their own kind of intelligence. And I think that was sculpted by flight. So you, you promised your dog might make an appearance. Dogs are pretty smart in the sense that they seem to have figured out uh, making their peace with us, that they can lead a, a pretty good life. You note that um, at least uh, Mahud, the, 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 the hawk in your narrative, doesn't like you and never will like you. If the hawk's so intelligent, why haven't they made their peace with us? They could fly around the zoos and parks and get fed by kids well mahood actually likes me better now <laughs> mahood lives on the street and um what mahood did not like was that i was a, a strange person he was a young hawk and he was unhappy with the situation and what impressed me the most about how he didn't like me was how courageous he was in announcing this it's screaming in my face yeah um, you I'm, I'm just going to quote you here you said Mahood does not like me and is not shy about announcing this. His is not a scream of fear, but a fury, the voice of an angry dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way you convince a hawk not to hate you is you try to convince them that you will make a suitable junior hunting partner. You don't reward them like you would a dog. You know, you can shape a dog's behavior by giving them treats and pats and playing with balls and giving them things that they want. The thing with a hawk is what it wants is to chase prey. Now, you can offer food to a hawk, but the hawk will not see that as a gift or a reward. My falconry instructor, Nancy Cowan, was very clear about that. You're giving the hawk its food. The food was already belonging to the hawk. You aren't giving it anything. The food already belonged to the hawk. That was its food. So uh, to convince a hawk to allow you to become its servant, you've got to do two things. You've got to not make a mistake that upsets the hawk, making it feel that it can't trust you. And two, you've got to prove yourself useful in scaring up game because what the hawk wants more than anything else its heart's desire the expression of everything it is is to chase and hunt prey when when it's hungry it's not so much to even eat it but to chase it they love the chase so if you're walking around on the ground and your falconry hawk is sitting in the tree maybe your footsteps scare up you know a, a little rodent the hawk can see that because their eyesight's so much better. And the hawk will always associate, oh, that person, that person is associated with that squirrel or vole or, or bunny running out. I'm going to stick around that person. And there have been, in um, described in, in other books, like Steve Bodio's uh, excellent books on, on hawking, um, Rage for Falcons, for instance, there have been wild hawks that have made friendships with humans and they will fly out of the woods to hunt with their human hunting partner. 
you can't keep a bird like that in captivity. They yeah. will fly away if you are no, you know, if you're not a good enough hunting partner, they will leave you. So, and there is, of course, an ancient human art of falconry, which you write about in the book. What is that? And and is it still um, a popular kind of activity? Yeah, actually, um, it's been going on for thousands and thousands of years and all around the world. Um, Nancy Cowan was a real scholar of... Yeah, you, you dedicate, I'm sorry to interrupt, you dedicate your book to this remarkable woman, Nancy Cowan, who uh, sadly uh, died of, of, of COVID. She's also the author, you have an intro of Peregrine Spring from 2016, a, a very popular book about herself as a master falconer. So perhaps you might say a little bit about her as an example of a, a falconer. Yeah, Nancy, Nancy, I was her first student when she founded the New Hampshire School of Falconry. And she made very clear from the start what falconry is not. Falconry is not about having a pet. Falconry is not about having a bird who loves you in the way that you might love your dog or your cat or even your cockatoo or your turtle or your snake. Um, it's a partnership and you have to earn that, that bird's trust. And the way that you, you deal with a falconry bird is completely different than the way you deal with any other bird or any other animal. And a lot of it has to do with technique. I mean, there's a certain amount of equipment that you need to, to learn to use, and they all have these special terms. Um, but it's really also a humility that you have to adopt, a mindset that you have to adopt to realize you're, you're not the boss of that bird. And if you think you're the boss of that bird, you've, you've lost it. Your bird's going to fly away from you. It keeps you humble. Right. We have, uh, for people watching, an image of uh, a Mughal with his hawk. This is a very ancient practice. Do you think we moderns are particularly unsuited to, to, to falconry? Well, a lot of people don't understand it. And um, although falconry now is, is thanks to Nancy and her husband, Jim, it's now legal in New Hampshire. I don't think it's even legal in every state. Many people have the wrong idea about falconry. And they think we're keeping, you know, you're keeping a bird in captivity against its will, or they think that these are pets. Um, they don't realize the contribution that falconry has made to the conservation of these birds of, of prey. And some people, believe it or not, just don't like hawks, although they are magnificent and gorgeous. But they're not very cuddly, are they? Well, no. And if you have a feeder with your favorite chickadee and cardinal and you know, you know all of, of those birds and a, and a Cooper's hawk shows up or a Broadway hawk and someone comes and eats your friends. That's, you know, very upsetting to people. <laughs> the, the other thing is that um, pigeon, um, pigeon enthusiasts uh, have had... Is there such a thing as a pigeon enthusiast? It's oh, like yeah. being a rat enthusiast, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's pigeon enthusiasts. There are pigeon races, which are fascinating. Uh, it, for homing pigeons who will, you let them go one place and then they fly back to your house. And when they make it back, you clock in their time and compare it with all of your, your other, there's also certain kinds of pigeons. Pigeons are very um, plastic 
genetically and you can get them to be all different kinds of colors and and shapes and there's certain pigeons called Birmingham rollers who I think they actually faint in flight and start spinning and thrashing around and then they regain consciousness well if a hawk sees that that hawk is going to eat that pigeon and there there have been many instances of um pigeon uh, enthusiasts who have poisoned and shot hawks because some of their pigeons are worth thousands of dollars and then they don't like it when a hawk comes along and kills it but that's you know that's what the hawk does that so that's nature like um, hawks we began talking a little bit about nature as a reflection we've also done many shows on the environment we did one with canary webb on trees. We've had several shows on trees. In your new book, um, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty, what did you learn about trees themselves? Because after all, this is where hawks live. Well, this is true. Um, But I was, of course, looking at the tree the way, to the extent I can, that a, a bird does. Is this a good perch from which I can see prey? Um, and I can't look at a tree through the eyes of the bird, though, because when you and I look at a tree, we see a big mass of green. But when a hawk looks at a tree, it sees all the individual leaves and it sees them in different colors that we can't even name. But I'm a big fan of trees and what you've been discovering about them and that trees appear to have their own way of communicating with other trees that the world the world is just so much more alive than we modern people have wanted to admit isn't it there's a saying from thales of miletus that you know he was a pre-socratic greek philosopher that to me all of the modern science we're finding out about, you know, trees being able to communicate with each other and fungi having the world wide web. Um, it's called the wood wide web um, and understanding the, the brains of birds. And it goes, the universe is alive and has fire in it and is full of gods. And to me, what that names is the aliveness, the vividness of the natural world and it's holiness, really. It's the reverence that we should be showing to all of the natural world that thinks and feels and knows in ways that we perhaps cannot. Sai, if trees could talk, what do you think they would say about hawks? <laughs> Boy, um, I don't know if hawks have any, if they do anything directly for trees. And I don't know if trees perception um, is even aware of it. It may be going, you know, so fast that you can't see it. They may appear as a hummingbird's wings do to us as just a blur. I don't know if trees even have a a way of seeing. Oh, here comes Thurber. Here comes the dog. There's my boy. He couldn't stay out of the shot, could he? No, of course not. He wants to to meet all of your fans. Um, I know that hawks are surely grateful for the trees being there because the trees. Yeah, otherwise they couldn't do their business, could they? I mean, they couldn't exist without trees. 
Well, no, I mean, they, they would have to like perch on cacti, which in some places they do. In fact, the Harris hawks that, uh, that I first learned to fly uh, live in the desert Southwest and they do need something to perch on. And although cacti can be as big as a tree, I think technically they're not a tree. Sai, so, uh, we also had wonderful writer Roman Krasnarich on the show as an English philosopher. Has it a really interesting new book out, The Good Ancestor? I a have that book. Prescription. Oh, good. You know the book. It's an excellent book. I thought you would. A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. What does your book on the hawks weigh? Because after all, for better or worse, a hawk isn't going to read it. We're going to read it, humans. What will it teach us about being good ancestors in terms of the environment and in terms of appreciation for creatures like hawks that aren't cuddly? Well, I think, and I address this in the introduction, I think it teaches us another way to love, which is different from our day-to-day relationships with everyone else. The Greeks said there were four kinds of love, the love we have for our parents and our children, the love that we have for our friends and colleagues, the love that we have for our uh, romantic partners. But there's a fourth one called agape, and that names a love that is not transactional. When you think of it, our love for our children, we want something from our children. We want something from our parents. We want something from our spouses and lovers. We want something from our friends and colleagues. We expect them to reciprocate our love. But a hawk does not reciprocate your love in the way that we recognize it. It teaches you to love in a free, pure way, almost the way we imagine that God loves us and we are to love God. Wonderful stuff from Sai Montgomery. It's what one would expect. She has many fans out there from her many best-selling books. The new book, The Hawk's Way Encounters with Fierce Beauty, is a wonderful read. It's incredibly short. I mean, it, it can be read in, in one hour. It, it's more like a long essay. So it's uh, no excuses for people not buying it because you could read it in, in an hour wherever you are. Congratulations, Sai, on this wonderful new book and on... Um, writing about this intriguing creature. Uh, what else should people be reading in the spring of 2022 in addition to um, in addition to your new book, The Hawks Way? Well, there is a, a ton of fascinating stuff on trees and fungi and mm. small creatures. Some of my um, favorite books, one is called Entangled Life, which is um, about fungi and the way they communicate. Um, Any of these wonderful tree books, the latest one that I read, um, Suzanne Samard wrote Finding the the Mother Tree. That's a fabulous book. You may have have read that one. I haven't done that one. We'll have to do that too. Oh, I think you would would love it. And um, I recently reread one of my favorite books, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. Mm. Well, it's wonderful to have you, Sai, on the show. Congratulations again on the book. And finally, and I'm asking all my guests this, but I think you will have a particularly unusual take on it. Uh, Sai Montgomery, author of The Hawk's Way, um, on May the 2nd, 2022. Who's in charge of the world, Sai? Who's running things? 
I think it's the fungi. 